I hope you'll take your copy of God's Word now and roll up your sleeves, prepare to work as we seek to understand this text. Look at Isaiah chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible, please take that one in the pew rack in front of you. That would be our great privilege to place you in possession of the Word of God. Let me remind you of the context of Isaiah 9, for it's never safe or good to just dive into a verse in the middle of a context. Isaiah is prophesying in Isaiah 9. 700 years before the fact of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Isaiah is giving hope to fellow Israelites who are about to be carted off into Babylonian captivity. And Isaiah has been telling his hearers, his readers, about the son of David who will come. And he focuses in on the titles of the Messiah. We've already heard Isaiah say that the Messiah will, it's a word of certainty, he will be called wonderful. By that he means he's a wonder in his person, that he's God and man, two natures in one person. He's going to be a wonder in terms of his life, whether it be his miracles of healing, his nature miracles, his teaching, and he's going to be a wonder in his death and resurrection. But Isaiah goes on and calls the Messiah to come a counselor, meaning he will be the best counselor, a sympathetic and wise counselor who's always available and gives perfect counsel. And then last week we saw Isaiah prophesied that he'll be the mighty God, that the Messiah, our Christ, will be mighty, meaning he'll do great exploits. He'll defeat all his enemies, and he will be fully God in every sense of the word. The Jesus whom we celebrate this time of year is God of God. Well, look carefully at Isaiah 9, verse 6, and to that title Isaiah adds another title. Everlasting Father. And of all the titles listed in this prophecy, this is the one that has caused the most consternation and confusion. And so this morning I'm going to try to clarify what Isaiah means by this title, Everlasting Father, and at the same time certainly attempt to lift Christ up in your hearing. This text points to the glory of Christ, but also of the complexity of our Lord Jesus. The prophet Isaiah is saying hundreds of years prior to the incarnation that the Messiah will be a child, we're told in Isaiah 7.14, and mighty God, we're told in Isaiah 9.6. And we mustn't ever think that we can fully grasp all the marvels of the person and work of Christ without laboring our minds. That's why I ask you sort of symbolically or metaphorically to roll up your sleeves, because today will require work. I say it on a regular basis. There are some sermons where I feel as though it's almost spoon-feeding the congregation, but there are other sermons where I feel like, now you better get a pick and shovel out. This is going to take work. And at minimum, it will take the work of you consulting the many texts that shed light on this text. So the truths that we're going to study today call for deep meditation, a loving worship, and we must recognize that we will not come to these truths by unaided human reason. We need biblical revelation and the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit. You remember Peter's great confession of Christ and his glory in Matthew 16. When Peter said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus immediately responded, blessed are you for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. But my father who's in heaven. So our petition now as we cry out to God. Our petition must communicate the sanctified longings of the Apostle Paul when he wrote, 
I count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. I want to know him. When Paul writes those words, he's been a believer. When he writes those words in Philippians 3, he's been a believer now pushing up against two decades. And you say, oh, Paul, don't you know Christ already? And he says, I've scratched the surface. I want to know more. Let that be our prayer this morning as we cry out to God for illumination. Let's pray together. Oh, sovereign Lord, your word is perfect, restoring the soul. Your word makes wise the simple. Your word gives light to the eyes of the blind. Your word is the power of God unto salvation for everyone that believes. But we, Lord, we are by nature blind. We desperately need you now to send the Holy Spirit to illumine us. We ask for you to enlighten us, giving us a teachable and humble heart, free from, free from pride and worldly wisdom. We pray this in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. So as you're looking at Isaiah 9, 6, notice the title, Everlasting Father. And I know this seems pedantic and simplistic, but I want to come at this from two angles. The first, I want us to look what is meant when the Bible uses the term everlasting, and then what is specifically meant when Isaiah prophesies that this one will be called the Father. Already, many of you are raising questions about that. But think about the term everlasting with me. This is actually the simpler part of the title. Everlasting refers to Christ's eternality, to his timeless nature, that Jesus, as God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, had no beginning and will have no end. This is one of the foundational beliefs of Christianity, that our God is eternal. If God is not eternal, then eternal life is not his to give. Also, if God had a beginning, and some of you who are raising four and five and six-year-olds and your children come and ask you, when did God begin? Who created him? And the answer is going to be contained in what I tell you right now. It's not too early for your children to be taught truth. Don't, don't tell them some fairy tale, some speculation. Tell them the truth. And so our point is, with God, what Scripture repeatedly states, and I'll try to represent that fairly, is if God had a beginning, he too would have had a creator at which point he's not the true God. Without the eternality of God, Christianity is futile. God's eternal nature is vital to us because it ensures that God will always be there for us. Whenever we need him, in what epoch or era we live in, no matter when we're troubled, our eternal God will always be immediately present. Now to dig a little deeper into the theological roots of this term everlasting, God's everlastingness, his eternality, is an incommunicable attribute. If you've been around here long, you know that, that theologians divide God's attributes or his character traits up into two, two bags. And one of those is the idea of communicable attributes, meaning that these are attributes which God communicates to us. He shares with the creatures, such as love. Certainly God is perfectly love, and you, in a small, tiny way, when you're loving your wife, loving your husband, loving your children, you are, you are receiving and communicating the communicable attribute of God's love. And then other communicable attributes would include justice, mercy, goodness, and holiness. In some small way, we show, we demonstrate, and give evidence of those traits in our life. But the incommunicable attributes, 
These are the characteristics which are true of God alone, and he does not share with the creature. He cannot. So one of his incommunicable attributes is his immutability, meaning he never changes. And this may be the hardest of God's incommunicable attributes for us, or his aseity, meaning his aloneness, standing in no need of the creature. But God's immutability, because we're going through changes rapidly, and we're always changing, hopefully for the better. But God never changes. Another of his incommunicable attributes is his omniscience, meaning God knows all things at the same time. He has never learned one thing. You and I will never know anything. I try to very gently remind people because usually they're grieving when they'll be talking about a departed loved one. They'll say, well, we'll know everything when we get to heaven. And I'll say, no, you won't. We'll still be learning and growing. You and I will never be omniscient. We will certainly in heaven hold no false propositions, but we'll not know everything. Only the triune God is omniscient. That's an incommunicable attribute. He doesn't share it with the creature. Another one of his incommunicable attributes is his omnipresence, meaning God is in all places at all times with his entire being. He's here now. He's on the island of Fiji. He's a hundred million light years out there at the edge of our galaxy. You and I will always be in one place at one time. Even in our glorified bodies in heaven, we will be at one place at one time. And then there's the incommunicable attribute of God's sovereignty, meaning he has the right and power to do whatever he chooses. You and I find our, our sovereignty thwarted every day. There are things we want to do, but we don't have the power to do it. That's God's sovereignty. He doesn't communicate it to us. And so I want you to think about God's eternality, his everlastingness. It, too, is an incommunicable attribute. It belongs to those attributes which are designated by the word infinity. Infinity applied to space is omnipresent. God is omnipresent in that he is exalted above any limitation of space. Infinity applied to time is eternality. God is eternal in that he is exalted above and outside the limitations of time. Now here's where you have to roll up your sleeves and go to work. <clears throat> I want you to hear... Because maybe right now this is the first time you've ever heard God's eternality stated, defined, and exalted as we have and as we will. But what I want you to see or at least hear is that this isn't just speculation, but the Bible goes to great lengths in every genre, literary genre of the Bible to say, oh, by the way, let me tell you about God's eternality. So, for example, in the law and the historical books, in Deuteronomy 33, the writer of Deuteronomy, Moses, says, The eternal God is your refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. Moses is setting forth where our hiding place is in a chaotic world, and he says, It's the eternal God. And if you want to fight and say, Well, I don't know if I can bind to the eternal God. I want a refuge, but maybe just, just here now. Moses says, Then I have nothing for you. Because the only refuge I have for you is the one who's eternal who has no beginning and no ending. Or in the genre of poetry, the psalmist writes in Psalm 102, My days are like a shadow that lengthens, and I wither away like grass, but you, O Lord, shall endure forever. The psalmist in this genre is making the claim 
that there will never be any end to the life and the power and the sovereignty of God. What about the New Testament? Think of New Testament epistles. Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1, that text that we often use as a benediction here. Paul writes to Timothy and says, Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. And what I want you to see as we start stacking up the literary genres of the Bible, law and history, there's the eternality of God. Poetry, there's the eternality of God. Epistles in the New Testament, there's the eternality of God. What about the prophets? This same Isaiah writes later in his book in Isaiah 57. He says, this is the one who is high and lifted up. He inhabits eternity. Do you want to know where God lives? Isaiah says he lives in eternity. I had an aunt in Durant, Oklahoma. If you're from Oklahoma, you can always find that someone is an Oki. If they pronounce it Durant, they are not from around here. But in Oklahoma, it's Durant, and there are three U's right there. But we would, we would on a regular basis go down and, and see our Indian side of the family and make a pilgrimage to the matriarch of the clan, Aunt Fanny. Aunt Fanny sat on her porch in the rocking chair, and she dipped snuff. And I thought she was one of the most intriguing people ever. And I asked my mom, I said, Mom, how old is Aunt Fanny when we were leaving Aunt Fanny and Uncle Leonard's porch? said, Mom, how old is Aunt Fanny? And she said, Carl, she's over 100. I said, how much over 100? She said, she's as old as the hills. Well, listen to how the psalmist speaks of our God. The psalmist says, he's as old as the hills. Oh, check that. He's older than the hills. Psalm 90, the psalmist says, Before the mountains and the hills were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Now I want you to notice how Jesus uses this title. Because you always have those people say, Well, did Jesus ever really claim to be eternal? Look at John chapter 8. And here's where I want you to really do the work. In John chapter 8, it's actually a very familiar text. You'll hear Jesus being involved in a debate about his human parentage. And if you'll remember, this was one of the favorite taunts of both the Sadducees and the Pharisees, that Jesus was illegitimate. And so notice the conversation and how it ends up. And notice how Jesus claims in the midst of a, an ugly argument, wicked charges against him. His retort, his response, his bottom line is, he's eternal. Look at John 8, verse 41. Jesus says, you do the deeds of your father. Then they said to him, we were not born of fornication. Implication, Jesus, you were. We were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceed forth and came from God, nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Because you're not able to listen to my word. You're of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. <coughs> he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources. For he's a liar and the father of it. 
But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which of you convicts me of sin? And if I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears God's words. Therefore, you do not hear because you're not of God. The Jews answered and said to him, Do we not rightly say that you're a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. And I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Most assuredly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham is dead and the prophets. And you say, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who's dead? And the prophets are dead. Who do you make yourself out to be? Now, this is a pivotal question. Look at the question of Jesus' enemies in verse 53. And Jesus will answer it. They are asking him, what is your claim? Who do you say you are? Jesus answered, if I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It's my father who honors me of whom you say he is your God. Yet you've not known him, but I know him. And if I say I do not know him, I shall be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and was glad. The Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Here comes Jesus' answer to their previous question. Jesus said to them, most assuredly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And notice what their response is. They know what he's saying. Whether anybody in this room or or any scholars know what he's saying, they know what he's saying. Because look at their response in verse 59. They took up stones to throw at him. They recognize he's claiming to be the eternal God. And so they're saying, since he's obviously not, we are legitimized under Mosaic law with stoning him, killing him. That's the penalty in the Mosaic law for blasphemy. So notice what Jesus is doing. When he says, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus is asserting that he's the I am who spoke out of the burning bush to Moses in Exodus 3. At that point, that's when all the Pharisees and Sadducees start reaching down and grabbing rocks because they're saying he's a blasphemer. He is claiming to be the eternal God by saying he's I am. This is when he claims to be I am. He's not saying I was or I will be. He's saying I've always had being. I'm eternal. Now contrast that with us as creatures. The past is closed off behind us. There's no way to get back there. By the way, this is why people love time travel movies and stories so much because it's completely outside of their and our experience. And people are playing games with you and saying, no, uh, isn't there a machine we can build? Wouldn't it be neat to go back in time or forwards in time? The future, of course, just as there's no way to get back to the past, there is no way we can reach ahead to the future. The time that you can and you and I can live in is about as wide as the edge of a surgeon's scalpel. We are contained in this one moment when we speak of time. Other genres where scripture speaks of the eternality of Christ. Look at it back at Revelation 1, the, pastor, the passage that Pastor Dodds read in our hearing a moment ago. And I want you to know, notice the titles that Jesus identifies himself with. And he uses three 
fascinating figures of speech. Look at verse 8 in Revelation 1. Jesus claims, I'm the Alpha and the Omega. This is the first and last letter of the Greek alphabet. And then he adds to it, he says, I'm the beginning and the end. And then he adds to it more. I'm the one who was, is, and is to come. So eternality or everlastingness means endless time in the past, endless time in the future. All of these figures of speech are trying to convey eternality. No beginning, no end. But there's more. There are other genres. For example, in the prophets and apocalyptic literature with Daniel, in Daniel 7, we see this brilliant scene where Christ is seated on his judgment throne, and there he's called the Ancient of Days, meaning he had no beginning. Or think about the prophets, the, the prophecies that we usually focus on at this time of year. Micah chapter 5, 2, again in the genre of the prophets. The prophet Micah foretells the exact birthplace of Jesus. He says it will be in the city of David, Bethlehem, Ephrathah. And notice what he says about the Messiah hundreds of years before Jesus comes. He says, his goings forth will be from of old, from everlasting. Meaning the Messiah who will fulfill Micah's prophecy has no beginning. And so dig in deep with me now. I realize at this point your head is just about to explode thinking about this concept. When we speak of eternality, we're speaking of God's relationship to time. You and I can only know time. We live in it. But God has no beginning of life or succession of days. He is before all time, and his duration can never be measured. He's imminent in time, meaning he lives inside of it. And yet he's transcendent outside of time. He lives independent, above and outside of time. It is impossible for him to age or decay. He's not limited by time because time is an aspect of his creation. He created time. And he's the uncreated creator. To speak of time is another way that the ancient Greek philosophers would speak of it. They would talk about motion. They'd say, that's what time is. It's motion. It's change. It's process. It's decay. Time is the measure that we live by, the measure of created reality and creaturely existence. Not God. He's not subject to time. But he does constantly use time for his purposes. But notice back to our title that Isaiah prophesies about this one who's to come, the Messiah. He will be the eternal or the everlasting father. And so the second person of the Trinity who comes and takes to himself flesh is eternal. By the way, when Isaiah prophesies that one of the names or titles of the Messiah will be everlasting father, he's speaking of God the Son. Now comes the difficult part. Stare at those words in Isaiah 9-6. When Isaiah says, he'll be called the everlasting father. Now, let me tell you what's not meant by this title. We believe in the personal distinctions in the Godhead. We are not Unitarians. We believe this. If you're here today and you think, this is really the first time I've grappled with this Trinitarian issue. This is, by the way, as a reminder, why we sing either the doxology or the Gloria Patri in every worship service, 52 weeks a year, morning and evening, because we want to remind you that being a Christian church, we're a Trinitarian church. 
We believe in one God eternally existing in three co-equal persons. Those three persons are the Father. The Father is God, but he's not the Son. The Son is God, but he's not the Holy Spirit. There are personal distinctions within the Godhead. And again, Christ, the second person of the Trinity, is with the Father from all eternity, we're told in John 1.1. But he is not the first person of the Trinity. Some evidences of that. Jesus prays to the Father. Some of the most stunning prayers in all the Bible, if not the most stunning. Look, for example, at Matthew chapter 11. And I want you to see, because I don't want you to walk out of here confusing the persons of the first and second person of the Godhead. Look at Matthew chapter 11. We've just been told in Matthew 11 that Jesus has had a a, a stint of ministry with no success. You'd think that Jesus would be upset. He'd be distraught. He would be mourning and weeping. Not at all. I want you to notice what Jesus' prayer is and to whom he addresses it. And this is so that you will not confuse the persons of the Godhead. Look at Matthew 11, verse 25. Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father. So what you have here is a, is a brilliant moment. It's a moment of inter-Trinitarian con- conversation. The second person of the Trinity, Jesus, is speaking to the first person of the Trinity. And look what he says. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the prudent and have revealed them to babes. He's thanking God for closing the eyes of the proud and for saying, stay at arm's length. And he he thanks the Father for drawing near to himself babes, the simple, the weak. Jesus goes on and says, Even so, Father, it seemed good in your sight. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. But notice, in the midst of Jesus thanking the Father for reprobation, for closing the eyes of some, but opening the eyes of others. Jesus establishes for us that he and the Father are two separate persons. Look at another example. Look at John 17. This is what's known as the high priestly prayer. This is Jesus moments before his arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus has delivered the upper room discourse in John 13, 14, 15, and 16. He is now in prayer, sweating great drops of blood. And in the last words that he'll say before Roman soldiers and Jewish soldiers come to arrest him, Jesus, we're told in John 17, 1, Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son also may glorify you. Notice who it's directed to. And so again, we are not Unitarians. This is the second person of the Trinity speaking to the first person. Now think about some things that are unique to Jesus. He is the only person of the Godhead who takes flesh. The Father has never taken flesh. The Holy Spirit has never taken flesh. Only Jesus. He's unique. He dies. The Father never dies. The Holy Spirit never dies. It's only Jesus Christ. So don't think that this phrase, when you read Isaiah 9, 6, and it gives us the titles, Everlasting Father, don't think that this somehow 
confuses or blends the persons of the Trinity into one person instead of three persons. And so that's, we've tried to clear the decks. We don't mean that. Here's what we do mean. Here's what we mean by this title, the everlasting father. By this, we mean he is the head of a great family. Just as a father is the federal representative or the covenant head of a household and makes decisions for them. So Jesus acts on our behalf as members of his family. Unlike Adam, our first parent, who by his disobedience cursed us and brought us to death. Whenever we speak of our father Adam, by the well, it is to speak of the fall or sin or death or pain or tears. But if we have covenanted and taken on a new father, not like our first father, Adam, but our father now, the Lord Jesus Christ, we can speak of him as our great representative who by his obedience has brought us life. Generation, birth, <clears throat> makes us sons of Adam, but regeneration makes us sons of Christ. In our first birth, we are seen as being in Adam, but in our second birth, we are now in Christ. Through Adam, we become sickly and weak, and our bodies are put into the grave in corruption. But in Christ, we receive life and strength, and our bodies will rise like seed which bears fruit at harvest. As Adam is the federal head of the covenant of works, do this and you'll live. So Jesus is the federal head of the covenant of grace. Jesus is a father in this sense. He's the head of a great family. How great? As we saw last week, it numbers in the billions. It's a number that's so great that no man can number them. But a second thing that this means when Isaiah says he's the everlasting father. He's a father in that he's stamping the family image on all his children. I am a dead ringer for my father, Gordon Robbins. We both started losing our hair at the exact same age. We both have the same Scandinavian jawline. And if you look at a picture of my dad at 18, there I am at 18. If you look at a picture of my dad at 30, you could confuse the two if it weren't for the weird tie he was wearing. So, just so Christ's children are being conformed to his likeness. That's why we're told this theological truth in Romans 8. We are predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son. In fact, the Apostle John writes in 1 John 3, we know that when he's revealed, we shall be like him. And so this is a second way that Christ is the everlasting father. Head of a great family, stamping the family image on all of his children. And then third, and most delightful for us, he's a father in that he views all his subjects as his children. He's compassionate when they're hurting and needy. Think of what the psalmist writes in Psalm 103, as a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who know him. In fact, Jesus demonstrates this. In his earthly ministry, he repeatedly called those he took pity on his children. Look at a couple of examples with me. Look at Matthew chapter 9. Perhaps you've read by this a thousand times. But this is the compassion, the fatherliness of our Jesus. In Matthew chapter 9, <clears throat> we read Matthew 9, so he got into a boat, that is Jesus, crossed over and came to his own city. 
And behold, they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. Now let's, let's dig in deep and analyze Jesus' response. What does he do when he sees somebody who's in so much sadness, who's so debilitated, they're a paralytic? When Jesus saw their faith, look what he says and look how he greets this paralytic. Son, son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. Do you hear what, how that title, Everlasting Father, now begins to take shape in the life of Jesus? He is to those who are in weakness, to those who are debilitated. He calls them son. Look at another example. Look at Mark chapter 5. And this woman is equally pitiful. Mark chapter 5, Mark 5 verse 25, we read of a certain woman who had a flow of blood for 12 years and had suffered many things from many physicians. She'd spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I only may touch his clothes, I shall be made well. Immediately the fountain of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of the affliction. And Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that power had gone out of him, turned around in the crowd and said, who touched my clothes? But his disciples said to him, you see the multitude thronging you, and you say, who touched you? And he looked around to see her who had done this thing, but the woman fearing and trembling, knowing what had happened to her. This is the woman who'd been hemorrhaging for over a decade. Came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. And so what we mean when we say that Jesus views his subjects as his children, he'll not be a deadbeat dad. And leave you as orphans, he says as much in John 14, 18. When he says, I'll not leave you as orphans, I'll come to you. He'll not leave us as orphans because we are told in Hebrews 2 that on that great day he'll acknowledge us as his children. Hebrews 2, we're given that picture of Christ when he says, here I am and the children God has given me. And so when we speak of Jesus as the everlasting father, it's at least those three components. He's the head of a great family. He's stamping the family image on all his children. And he views his subjects as his children. And he does so with compassion. How do we apply this, this great name? The first is, I want to boast in Christ a little while longer. Eternity applies to all of Jesus' attributes. His love, when he's called the everlasting father, everlasting means that every single character trait Jesus has is eternal. His wrath is eternal. He will pour it out on his enemies and the wicked and the reprobate forever, and he will never grow weary of it. He will punish them forever. But his love will know no end. You and I will be the recipients of his, his kindness his goodness, his mercy, 
His attribute of love is everlasting. His truth will never end. It will never expire. The truth that you have contained in the scriptures will be the truth forever. His holiness is eternal as he himself is. And so eternity applies to all of Christ's attributes. Another application. Do you ever feel like a spiritual orphan? Not sure if anyone cares for you. Christ by this title, when he's called the everlasting father, is being promised as the one who will care for you, defend you, provide for you, love you forever, and call you his child. This everlasting father, we are told in Hebrews 13, will never leave you or forsake you. Years ago when we were in Las Vegas, we were at the wedding rehearsal. And we were doing what you do at a rehearsal. We were practicing the vows and... The young lady who was going to do the wedding for said, can we skip the vows? And I said, that's usually like the best part. And no, we can't. She said, my dad made promises that he would always be there for us, and he left. My first husband took vows that he would never leave or forsake me, and he left. I just don't want to be lied to again. But our Father, he's being promised as the one who will never leave you or forsake you. You know this. There are people in this room who've had a a father walk out on them and abandon them. Or a husband do the same. And it's hard for you to believe that any father figure will be faithful. But this Jesus is the everlasting Father. He makes promises and keeps them. And he never changes. Let's pray together. Our Father, how we give you thanks for your eternality, your fatherly care, your provision and protection. How we thank you that you are the the parent of a great number that no man can number, that you are a good father and that you have compassion upon all of your children. And so in this season, enable us to worship you with reverence and zeal, even as our everlasting Father.